0: Hi, and welcome to The Beagle Has Landed. I'm your host, Laura Hersher. I'm here today talking with Beverly Gage. Beverly Gage is a historian, a professor at Yale University, and a member of the National Humanities Council. And if you've heard her name recently, and it's a decent chance that you have, it is almost certainly as the author of G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century. One of the best books of 2022, according to, among others, The Washington Post, The Atlantic, The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Polish Weekly, and The Smithsonian. Now, some of you might be thinking that J. Edgar Hoover is an unusual choice for the Beagle. And you would be right. But it's a great book and a story about America that is both foundational and timely. So, hey, you might want to read it. And while you're there, while you're there reading it, consider this or don't, because I don't want to make you guys feel bad about yourselves, but Beverly published this book in 2022, three years after a chance encounter with a plant spiraled into a rare disease diagnosis that has upended her life and was the subject of a recent New Yorker essay called Nobody Has My Condition But Me. And that is what brings Beverly here to talk with us today. Hi, and welcome.
1: Hi, Laura. Thanks.
0: Yeah. So uh, this story begins in 2019 Um, And before this, you had no sense of having any particular condition, limitations...
1: Yeah, before this moment, I would say I had a range of kind of middle-aged complaints, muscle tension, if I sat at my desk too long, you know, my body seized up, all of that. And so one question is whether all of that now can be seen as, as related to what came later. But there was a very distinct day in early September of 2019 when I went swimming in the Long Island Sound um, I ran into a plant that scratched up my arm and felt very weird and and uh kind of got inflamed and uh, and then that night, uh, I came home and uh got started on a very unexpected medical
0: adventure. This is like a fairy tale, like the real grim ones, right? Like not the Disney Fied version. like you ran into a plant, right. Like-
1: Right. And, and doing something that was supposed to be really good for me. Right. I mean, this was a moment of like oh, form so and exercise. I was doing distance swimming. I had this vision of a, a future as like a real open water swimmer. Um, no more. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so the itch and the rash that goes away in the way of itches and rashes. Right. But what happens next?
1: Yeah, that night uh, after swimming, the the scratch itself went away pretty quickly. Um, But that night, I started to have very itchy ankles. And when I got up the next day, and then for several days after that, I began to get a rash that spread all over my body and notably um, began to have sort of strange and quite painful joint symptoms. Now, at first, they were in my neck and in my jaw. And again, Not jumping to any nefarious conclusions, I thought, well, you know, there were a lot of waves and maybe I was turning my head weird and opening my mouth really wide, but um, uh, the rash eventually went away with treatment from a dermatologist, but those joint pains stayed and kept moving around.
0: You first thought about allergies, arthritis? I think I would have thought about arthritis with joint pain
1: you know, I had never thought about arthritis at all, aside from, you know, kind of osteoarthritis, something that old people got. I I hadn't ever thought about inflammation, inflammatory issues. I thought very little about autoimmune disease. And so I just didn't really have a language for making sense of it. But Uh, that rash went away, these pains stayed, and I couldn't lift my arms without screaming in pain. And it was really that level of discomfort that was required at that point for me to to, to go see a doctor because I was not a big doctor person.
0: Yeah, you have, you mentioned this in the article that you had a very different experience than a lot of people maybe with versions of this story in that. Um, you were believed right away, and maybe some of your doctors took it all more seriously than you did.
1: Right. I went to see a rheumatologist pretty quickly. So I get my healthcare and I feel very fortunate to get my healthcare this way. Uh, Since I'm a professor at Yale, it's through uh, the Yale medical system um, and that means there's a pretty centralized one building you go to for everything. And then if something really weird's going wrong, you've got this whole world of uh, research specialists and medical specialists at the hospital system and the medical school, um, and you get you get sent over there. Um, so things moved, uh, I would say, both slowly and quickly. Um, you know, when I first went to. Uh, The rheumatologist, she did some pretty standard tests. And the main thing that was wrong was just that my inflammatory markers were, uh, I believe the word that they used was sky high. Um, And that was an indication that something weird uh, was, in fact, going on. And of course, I could feel that. But we cycled through a lot of very obvious things rheumatoid arthritis, serum sickness. We tried a lot of standard medications. And you know, it took about nine months to to a year to realize that none of those were were working and there was something else going on.
0: So you said that that in this period of time you began to keep a journal to try and track things. Is this is this when you started to feel like a research project? You're a you're a researcher. Did at some point you start to say like, oh, I have the skills for this. I'm gonna turn myself mm-hmm. into a research project.
1: I did. And it was, of course, interesting for me because I was in the middle of writing a biography, right? Writing the story of sort of someone else's life and the notes that are there and the whole system. And I and to some degree I took that uh that skill set and just began to apply it to myself and um started to keep. Uh, a journal of all sorts of things with the great determination and confidence, ultimately completely misplaced that I could, you know, through my own actions and uh, savvy somehow bring this under
0: control. And you went to see a second rheumatologist and you said that was the first time anybody used the word rare disease. I guess that's two words, the two words, rare disease.
1: (laughs) Yeah, about nine months to a year into this whole thing, having cycled through all sorts of biologic medications and tests, uh, still having it respond to nothing but but prednisone, right, which is a pretty powerful, but uh, not so great steroid in terms of its, its side effects. Uh, I went to another rheumatologist, um, and he thought, well, this isn't rheumatoid arthritis, this actually isn't anything that I've seen before. Um, he had an idea for a different diagnosis. Um, That diagnosis also turned out to not be correct, but that sent me on into the world of immunology and into the world of genetic testing.
0: Pausing, because this is actually really, for people in the medical system, like a a, a very, I don't know if interesting as the word is, like ironic anecdote. You were turned down for a drug and your insurance company said you needed more workup. Is that right?
1: Well, so he was uh, a rheumatologist who was both outside of my insurance system, was a kind of one-off, but they also felt the drug that he wanted to prescribe ought to be prescribed by an immunologist and not a rheumatologist. And so I got sent over to immunology um, and they began to run their own tests to see if his instincts were correct. As it turns out, his instincts were not correct, but they found uh, a whole series of uh, kind of alarming results in my uh, immune system that that led us in new directions.
0: So the the insurance company inadvertently exactly. led you to like more information and like a whole new world of medical treatment, right? exactly right. Open themselves up. Okay. Good move. Um, So yeah. So you had uh, low antibodies and poor vaccine response. And um, just to get the timing right, this is 2020, right?
1: Yeah. This is now late summer and into fall of 2020. So a year into the adventure.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So you're sick with a hard to describe disease. That you know makes you a poor candidate for for a vaccine, and probably makes you a, a bad person to get COVID in the middle of an epidemic. But also, no stress, right?
1: Right, none, none at all. Um, yeah, you know, it was it was it was, it was kind of a an interesting storm because I simultaneously learned that I had very poor vaccine response, very few B cells, that my immune system was all out of whack. And to control this inflammatory and joint condition, I was also on a lot of immune suppressants at the same time. So it was kind of a, a double whammy, um, though it took me a long time to, to get COVID. <laughs> so that
0: was, I guess, pretty good. <laughs> I guess. I don't know. Everyone had their own pandemic, but man, I feel like everybody I talked to, there's not a lot of great pandemic stories, but this is pretty bad. Um, Okay. So there's a phrase that will mean something to my particular audience. In fall of 2020, you had genetic testing and you got a result that you described yourself as a zebra with polka dots. You don't know this, but there's a genetic testing lab that gives out stress ball zebras at every genetics meeting and they decorate them differently. So many of us have zebras with polka dots.
1: Oh, that's great. I thought it was my own genius metaphor,
0: but <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. It, it is a genius metaphor. It is a genius metaphor. It is fantastic. We literally have zebras with polka dots. We have zebras with um beads around their neck from New Orleans. I have zebras in raincoats. I don't know why I, Seattle. I think that must have been Seattle. Yeah.
1: That's very funny. Um, yeah, was... yeah, and my my zebra with uh, with polka dots was you know the zebra part was was discovering that I seemed to have some sort of primary immune deficiency and then pretty rare one uh, and then doing the genetic testing and discovering that I had a mutation that had never before been seen in human or medical history and so that sent me on uh, another path altogether that was that was the polka dots
0: yeah. And so they cannot tell you why this is making you sick, but they also can't tell you, like, why you were well for the first X years of your life, right? So, correct. Big mystery. Um, and you uh, got hooked up with the uh, Undiagnosed Diseases Network down at NIH. I don't know if they still call themselves that, but that's... Yeah, well, I got
1: hooked up with a particular researcher there who was studying um, my gene as the PLCG2 um, that has a problem. And so we got to the PLCG2 guy, a doctor named Michael Umbrello, um, who was starting a a research study. And so I I was sent there.
0: Yeah, so um, you want to describe your your experience going there because i i think sort of a a mythical center for a lot of us we we know about it but not very many people get there <laughs> <laughs> right
1: well um i didn't know about it and so um when my doctors started saying well we think we're going to have to send you to to the NIH i of course immediately uh, began exploring and i would say you know, both that initial realization and then the experience of going was both Uh, Kind of thrilling in a way because I thought, wow, I'm special and interesting. And there's all this time and energy going into trying to figure this out. Um, And then it was also pretty lonely because it was um, a sense that, you know, it's not like I was in the middle of nowhere here and didn't have access to really smart. You know, by the time I got to the NIH, I had seen lots of doctors at Yale. I had gone up to Harvard. They would consulted with people at Columbia and Penn, and they'd done grand rounds. I mean, it was all of this attention from pretty smart, high-powered medical people, and they couldn't figure it out. Um, and so that was, of course, pretty alarming and and jarring. Um, and then just going there itself was, was a really interesting physical experience, which I'm, I'm happy to talk about.
0: Yeah. Yeah. They, you know, you really learn why, uh, may you live in interesting times is actually a curse, right? Like, I guess we've all learned that to an extent, but right. <laughs> may, may you live in interesting times. It's sort of like, it's like the, it's like the subtlest of terrible curses. Um, yeah. So tell us about the, physically. So you go down there, you're down there for how many days? So I always
1: just went for, uh, what was, I guess I've always gone for two nights, um, and about one and a half days of, uh, of meetings and appointments. Um,
0: and they, yeah, said, they, said and- they took 21 vials of blood.
1: Right so uh so it's a it's a funny experience to go because it's a very high security campus. Um, I was usually going down on a Sunday night for a, a Monday morning um, appointment and you go Sunday night and it's deserted. it's this massive campus right It's deserted it's kind of walled in and you have to go through this huge security checkpoint um and uh, they have a site. On campus, that's basically a a hotel where outpatient patients can stay. Um, So it was very odd, and this was COVID still when I went, and so um, everybody's masked. I had to go alone. Um, It was very, you know, both again kind of strange and isolating and fascinating and uh, uh, strangely. Um, invigorating experience. Uh, so yeah, um, so so I went, they they took a lot of my blood, some of which they tested there and other of which uh, was stored. And they had already been, been working on my, uh, you know, to kind of trying to figure out what was happening genetically with me even before I got there.
0: Here's something I wanted to ask you, because it really jumped out at me. You wrote that somebody there said to you, your cells are gold to us. So you're a historian. <laughs> you probably know about someone named Henrietta Lacks. <laughs> yeah, um, there are some other stories uh, about controversy around um, how people's cells are used. Mm-hmm. Did you ever hear of a case called John Moore?
1: I have not. No case.
0: Yeah, there was a. It's kind of a funny story, so i I'll, t- I'll tell you. There was a, a case of a guy who had hairy cell leukemia. And his doctors felt that his cells were gold to them because they were actually trying to create and commercialize a a product that they used for his recovered cells. These were the doctors who had helped him recover from leukemia. And it was all fine as long as um, he lived in the area. And they kept saying, come in, you need to come to see us every six months. No one else will take such good care of you. You need to come here. But then he moved away, like he was in California and he moved up to Seattle or Washington, Washington, Oregon. And they said, no, but you need to still come here. You need to still come here. And, and he said, I think once or twice, he said, okay. And then he said, you know, it's, I've been better for a long time. It's really inconvenient. I think I'm going to find doctors here. And they said, no, no, you need to come here. And he's like, I don't want to. And they said, we will fly you. And they, we, they we like, want oh. your and cells. At, <laughs> and at some point it occurred to him that this was not normal, that this was not normal, that your doctor is so committed that they're willing to fly you down to have your semi-annual checkups. And he started looking into it. And that's when he found out that they were actually using his cells. Um, and he sued them. Whole big story lawsuit. But the, the bottom line of the lawsuit was they said, like, you know, that they said that the doctors had not behaved well with all the lying. The court was negative on all the lying, but they said, "You know, once you give up your cells, you give up yourselves." So, you know, I, I just wonder how those words struck you. Did you, did you, did you feel at all like, like, wait a minute, this is supposed to be for me?
1: I didn't really, I was, you know, happy. So I was there out of my own self interest. I mean, I wanted them to to figure this out. But you know, I'm also an academic. I am a researcher myself, and I have lots of faith in that process. And so I was kind of happy that, uh, that this was interesting and useful. Of course, you don't really want to be Interesting and useful in some sense, right? I would rather be incredibly boring, uh, which would maybe mean that we 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 could do something more about it. Um, But given that we already knew that that wasn't the case, uh, I was, um, yeah, I was pretty enthusiastic to 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 kind of watch this process at work. It was really interesting to me.
0: Yeah, because we're kind of historians too. I was thinking about this when I read the piece. I mean, we're historians, and 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 the similarities. I'm going to draw two similarities. Okay. One is that because geneticists, genetic diseases uh, frequently present in multiple systems, when you're trying to figure out what's going on, you need a story that explains all of these different things. So you're looking for a single story, right? Like you're looking for a storyline, not a simple, not just an answer. Um, And so I think that, we go about it in the same way. You're sort of digging through. And the, and the other thing, which is not so good for you actually, is that one of the ways in which we're like historians is that a lot of the work we put in now is that with an eye to the future. Which right.
1: Which is less good you. for the, for the, for yeah. the actual, the actual patient. One of the reasons that I, that I did want to write that piece was Uh, Because I was interested in the the intersections, which I hadn't expected to find between, um, you know, kind of the process of, of biography or what historians do, my experience, which... Uh, was in its own right sort of an effort to stabilize a narrative that kept getting destabilized. I would think that we were heading in one direction, and then the test would show that it's something else, and then we would go in another direction. And uh, and some of the time I felt fine, and some of the time I felt sick. So there was a kind of narrative process to that, and I experienced it as. You know, a process of trying to stabilize a narrative. And then every time I thought I had a fixed story, it kind of collapsed uh, around me. And then the third place that I that I really thought was was interesting, you know, was the mm, sort of the intersection between, as you were saying, the ways in which researchers of all sorts are usually working off of incomplete information, right? As as an expert, you have certain kinds of expertise that allows you to interpret the information that you have in hopefully a a smart way, but, but you're always working off of incomplete information. And it certainly, you tell me, but it certainly seems that way. Um, in the world of genetics, where there's simultaneously so much information and and so little kind of knowledge about quite what to
0: do with it, there's a lot of data. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of data and not quite enough information. you know? that's what that's what we have. Yes, I agree with you completely. I think we are always working on a story, and sometimes the story is enough. I guess in genetics, it's it, for me, it's not so much that we're constantly finding out we're wrong. It's that it always turns out to be more complicated. I I have this in my Twitter bio. I always say I'm going to put it on my tombstone. Genetics, it turned out to be more complicated than we thought. Like everything turns out to be much less simple. Like it, it's, it's oh, all there's always but an exception or but another piece of information, whatever.
1: Well, history and the study of history is like that too. You know, often graduate students writing their dissertations say, My goal here is to complicate a story that we thought we understood.
0: Well, you, you you did that in this <laughs> award-winning book, right? Isn't that sort of the? That's West right. I was
1: line? I was complicating our understanding of uh, of this strange man, J. Edgar Hoover. Yeah.
0: So, it's kind of where to give you know, like we get to the end. I, I have other questions, but to get to the end, they didn't really give you an answer in terms of. You got more information without being told anything that effectively changed where you are. You say at the end of the magazine. Now I don't think may have changed since then, but that you uh, it it continues to wax and wane. You continue to need to be on more steroids than you'd like to be on. So my question for you is: We often make the case that it's it's valuable for people to know what's going on even when you can't fix it, which is where we are an enormous amount of the time right now. We've gotten 20 years post the Human Genome Project. We are really good at finding genetic explanations for phenomenon that look genetic. Like we are really good at that, which we didn't used to be. Fixing them, meh wait a few more years, right? So, so you're kind of a really, actually, I'm sorry, a a, a classic, I won't say a good example, because it's not good, but like a classic example of where we are right now. But there's a lot of people who make the case that that's still helpful. Have you found it helpful? You're, you're, a, you're an intellectual person, professor at Yale, like, have you found it helpful to have that picture? Does it does it help you day to day?
1: I have definitely found it interesting. And interesting for some of the reasons that you have said, one of the things that I wrote in that article was that even though I'm a historian, I tend to think in terms of time and where we are in history, that actually feeling very much of a very particular moment was something that was really accentuated in this way. Because 20 years ago, I wouldn't have had this knowledge. In 20 years, more, we might know what to do with it. And so it just feels like a very particular moment, almost down to the year and the month, because it's changing so rapidly. Um, And so that was intellectually interesting to me, I guess, experientially and emotionally. And that's actually been, of course, the much harder part of, of this whole experience the one piece that I think really was valuable about having that knowledge is that it allowed my, me to blame myself a little bit less, um, that some of my first instincts when all of this started was to try to figure out what I had done wrong or even in those early journaling days to think, aha, if I just do the right things, I will get this back under control. My own will, et cetera, is going to be able to, to, to do that. And somehow to know that there was a genetic basis, something that had probably been there a long time, that we didn't fully understand, but um, did help, I would say, emotionally <laughs> with with that piece of the whole, of the whole experience.
0: That's really interesting, and it was on my list of things to pull out that you'd notice. You said that one of the doctors said that this is common among women, this idea of blaming themselves.
1: And She um, told me, yeah, she told me that uh, women come in and say, what did I do wrong to cause this? And men just come in and say,
0: I'm in pain, fix
1: me. Yeah,
0: (laughs) Um, yeah, that... um, I don't like to make generalizations, but i that's a lie. I love to make generalizations, <laughs> and that feels really true to me. Yeah, it's actually a big, a big concern to me, because I feel you were talking about being the patient of 2023, right? Being in the moment of 2023, 2022. Another thing about 2023 is we have enough information out there to make stories without knowing what to do with it. And I feel that COVID and the vaccines and all that, even aside, even that sort of the craziness aside, there's a whole industry springing up to make use of evocative sounding information. But there's so many people out there selling to people, literally or figuratively selling to people that they know, you know, that they can construct a narrative out of this. It feels like a very, um, maybe it always has been, but it feels like a very vulnerable moment for quackery Mm -hmm. because of that,
1: is that? Yeah, and I, in all of this, tried to kind of resist, you know, deep Google dives um, in part because, you know, if you know that you have something that's just very weird and very specific to you, then you're probably not going to find out very right. If 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 all of those doctors can't diagnose, I'm not going to self-diagnose through through Google. But the one place that I I did find myself drawn to and and have found very confusing is as you're suggesting this whole world of kind of thinking about inflammation and then diet and the relationship between all of these things: diet, sleep, stress, uh, inflammation, and Uh, And then these larger um, medical syndromes. And I, uh, there's so many theories. There's so many people who have actually, I think, had real experiences of, you know, eliminating this or changing this uh, that have have helped them and healed them. But trying to figure that all out independently or, you know, experiment on myself in some way, I found quite difficult and frustrating and, and confusing.
0: Yeah, uh, it's very frustrating as a clinician. It's very frustrating because there are the successes. Right. Like the fact that it's all unproven doesn't mean it's it's all not true, right? So, you know, one can't simply say all of it's nonsense. We just don't know. And so, like I said, I think it, it creates a vulnerability. One thing that many people have talked about that you didn't talk about in your article was uh, finding other people with the same condition and that being very helpful. Is it just so rare Did you find no- nobody else with the same condition or a similar condition?
1: There are many people with some variety. So on the one hand, I know that my particular profile, per- genetic as well as, as symptomatic, is weird, right? And very specific. Um, and has even, you know, strange responses to to very common medications. There are, are beyond the genetics, just some mysteries about me um, that don't conform to a lot of straightforward diagnoses. On the other hand, there are millions of people, certainly with autoimmune disease, with arthritis, with joint problems, and and even within the world of rare disease, you know, with immune deficiencies, um, that have lots in common with my experience. So I have poked around a little bit. I've looked at a couple of Facebook groups for people with common variable immune deficiency, which is one of my technical diagnoses but you know there again, I'm a little weird because usually people who have that diagnosis have had a series of problematic infections through their whole lives and uh, and that's their that's their main problem and and, and that isn't actually my. Main problem, at least as far as we know.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's always bad when you're talking about one of your diagnoses, one of your main diagnoses, (laughs) more than one main diagnosis. Um, The other thing that didn't exist in your story that I wanted to ask about there were no genetic counselors in that story. Did you encounter any genetic counselors at NIH or as a part of any of this?
1: I did not really. I mean, when I had the genetic testing first done, um, you know the people who gave me the results were uh were people uh I assume one of them was a genetic counselor in that one scenario we had one meeting they they delivered these results and then I, I was kind of sent along uh to my other doctors and I I didn't have an ongoing experience so um overall you know aside from knowing about this what I call my 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 one weird Gene um I haven't thought about or been counseled about this in some larger sense.
0: So, so yeah. So the follow-up to that question, and I mean obviously you have you got your fancy Yale doctors, <laughs> you had the whole Ivy League talking about your case. You went to NIH. So you had a lot, right? You had a lot, like like, like, and and you acknowledge that like many, many times in the article. But is there a piece of this where so genetic counselors are the handholders of the world, right? Mm-hmm. Explanation, context. How do you work with this in your life? Where do you fit this in? What does it mean for other people in your world and other people in your family? is Is there a piece of that conversation that was missing? Like did that did that would that have been a good part of your experience?
1: Maybe and that did come up at you know in a, in, a, in a very general sense in part because you know I think the NIH um, I don't have that many living relatives um, but but the few that that are around the NIH is sort of curious about right <laughs> um, and so it, it sort of came up in in that sense but you know no one in my family has experienced any symptoms that are anything like this uh and so at the moment i think my wisdom and their wisdom is you know if something started to happen then because of my experience we would we would maybe know where to look you know i would say honestly my greatest frustration as a patient was not really having the person who who was in charge, (laughs) that there are lots of different people. There are lots of different specialists and they were all people of enormous knowledge and great goodwill. And yet I was never sure, you know, when something came up or we found this out, often they were talking about me with each other and I wasn't aware of that, which was fine, which was good. Um, But, you know, when something would come up, I would send six my chart messages to six different people, not really knowing who 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 was doing what. Um so that I think would have that probably is the thing that would have been the the most helpful to me um but, but for coordination of awesome. care, yeah, I think so. yeah,
0: yeah, very interesting. ok. So that's helpful. There was a phrase that you you referred to this a little bit earlier, the chant that the the impulse to look backwards. Uh, but in your, in your article, you use a, you, you talk about one of the doctors said, I'm not a fan of the retrospectoscope, retrospectoscope, <laughs> it's hard to say. And I thought that interested me. I thought that would interest you as a historian, right? Like, like the dangers of looking backwards. <laughs>
1: yeah i think what he meant by that was so now we know about this thing or this series of things and we think maybe it's been here for a long time was activated recently but maybe it's been activated for a long time and this impulse to go back um i would say both um to think about you know was i having weird symptoms that i should have recognized and then also to think you know should i have done something differently and kind of, um, could I have prevented this? You know, all oh, of that no, no, at, no, a, at a no, certain no, moment, no right,
0: it. is it is spiral. Of all you need, first of all, you need, <laughs> let me just put this in terms, you need primary contemporary documentation, right? <laughs> like you can't think back. You got to go right. back. You got to find right. your pediatrician re- records right. find that like, we need, we need the primary documents here. Right, because otherwise it's dangerous to sort of look back for the exact reason that you led yourself to, because it's just another way of saying, is this really my fault? Which, you know, allow me, it's not your fault. Okay, thank you. (laughs) It's not your fault. (laughs) Obviously not your fault. Like what, you know, like, like, you know, I, I mean... Keith Richards is still alive. What did you do? Right. Well, I did some
1: things, but nothing on that level. So
0: (laughs) if 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 Keith Richards is still alive, then the rest of us, it's not our fault, right? That's (laughs) that's a good standard. I like that standard. (laughs) Yeah. So the final point I just wanted to bring up, not make, is about where you find yourself now, which is living with uncertainty. And you talked a little bit about living with uncertainty, and I think that's such a great point. Like so that's a big genetic counseling issue, right? Like we're frequently talking with people about the idea of living with uncertainty and how much uncertainty they can tolerate, and what is going to help and what isn't going to help, and so on. Do you find that you get better at that over time? Is there been anything that's helpful for you? That's my least
1: favorite thing, um, and I think it's 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 my my. Well, okay. Aside from the you know the times when I couldn't walk or something, uh, has been the hardest uh, the hardest part about all this in general. I don't like a lot of uncertainty, and then uh, having this kind of epic uncertainty um, where there really isn't anyone who can even offer a range of options about what's likely to happen because it's been so, so quirky um, all, all along. Yeah, that's been hard. And mostly, you know, mostly I feel okay uh, because I'm on these drugs and uh, the drugs aren't great, um, but I have just tried to think about other things. Um, and to accept that, you know, that kind of uncertainty is life <laughs> but like actually all this is doing is accentuating something that everybody's in uh but uh there are reasons that 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 we don't accentuate it because it is just really really hard to to
0: yeah this is think a, about this is a brutal form of middle age this is like it' like right. oh well life gets harder but not this time. no now I'm gonna ask the question that makes me feel bad. You feel good, which is like, oh, Beverly, in the middle of all of this, all this going on. How'd you finish the book?
1: Yeah, well, that's a great question. You know, in a funny way, I think, uh, so it wasn't helpful per se, but between COVID and the fact that I couldn't do very much, right? Everyone's at home and I couldn't do a lot. It actually constrained my uh, kind of physical self, It meant that I had a bunch more time to kind of sit at my desk um, and uh, I really did want to get this, get this project done. Uh, So I don't know that it was helpful per se, but it was also a relief to think about something else, something that I had, in fact, more control over and something where I could define the narrative.
0: (laughs) Perfect. Thank you so much for, uh, that's a great answer. That's a great ending. Thank you so much for for joining me for this conversation. I'm, you know, I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that this has happened to you. I'm I'm sorry that there wasn't an answer, but um, I'm amazed that you have made so much come out of it, um, including an excellent article. You should read the book. You should also go to The New Yorker and read this article because it's a fascinating story. And, um, you know, we have to take advantage to it when, um, literarily inclined and um, scholarly people go through the experiences that our patients go through and emerge to write about it, that's that's pretty amazing. So, thank you for doing that.
1: Well, thank you for being interested. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, we're done with that. Thank yous. Goodbye, everybody. Go to the website, follow me on Twitter, all that good stuff. Take care. Bye, everyone.